0: Last night, as, I, as we tucked our children into bed, I assured my youngest son that I wouldn't call him back to the auditorium <laughs> <clears throat> once he left for children's church today. Um, if you will, take your Bible and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 14 to 18 here in a minute. Um, If you're not familiar with the Bible and you're using one in the pews, Philippians 2, verse 14, is on page 981 of that Pew Bible. So feel free to do that. Um, It will help if you follow along in the Bible as we go along. Um, But let's begin by reading these verses, verse 14 to verse 18. This is what the Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we bow now before your word. We recognize that these words that you have spoken through the Apostle Paul are true. They will never lead us astray. You have given them that we might be taught and corrected and trained in righteousness. And so we pray that you will do that work. Even as your word is taught, I pray that you will keep me faithful to the text as I speak both in explanation and in application, that we might understand what you have said and we might respond to your words, for we are your people. I am your servant. This is your word, and we pray in your name. Amen. It's been a few weeks since we've been in Philippians. We started that journey back in February. Uh, and it's been a few weeks so I thought I would catch you up just a bit <clears throat> Paul is in prison in Rome and he is writing to the Philippian church, a church that is facing a few things uh, it is facing the world's opposition forces from outside the church that are seeking to oppose, to silence, to persecute it, it exists in a society where the common phrase is, Caesar is Lord, but the confession of faith of this church is, Jesus is Lord, and that brings the world's opposition. Secondly, it's facing church division. If you read the whole letter all at once, which is a good thing to do, probably take 15 minutes or so maybe, depending on the, 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 the amount of how fast you read, um, But if you read the whole letter, you'll see that there are these little cracks of division that are happening in the church, problems that are emerging between people, indications just from Paul's commands even that there are problems to address. So they're facing that. And third, they're facing doctrinal distortion. There are people who are saying that in addition to believing in Jesus Christ, you must also be circumcised, you must also go through this religious ritual if you're really going to be a Christian. So they're facing these three things, the world's opposition, church division, (coughs) and doctrinal distortion. Now, it doesn't take much imagination to connect the dots between the Philippian situation in the first century and our situation in the 21st century, for we are facing the same kinds of things. We face the world's opposition. We are facing, not necessarily in every particular local church, but we do face church division if you are on things like uh, if you're on some social media platform and you see people within the church at large interacting with one another, you will see the division, the chasm that uh, seems to be forming between different parts of the church. And also, there is doctrinal distortion. It is everywhere. And so, we're living in, in a time that is very much like the time of the Philippians. So, it's pertinent for us to pay attention to what God has said in this little letter. And while we are in chapter 2, the section that we're in actually began back in chapter 1, verse 27. So just take a look at that. It says, "...only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ." This is Paul's thesis, not just for this section, but really for the whole of the letter. His desire in writing this is to help these Christians live a life that is worthy of the gospel. And actually, chapter 2 ends with a couple of examples of what it means to live gospel-worthy lives. Now, originally, when I planned this entire 2021's preaching schedule back in September, uh, I had planned for verses 19 to 30 to be all a sermon on its own, so I had a choice to make. Either I throw off my the whole calendar that I've already established, or uh, I preach twice as long, which I know all of you would be eager to hear, or I give you a synopsis of what that says, because really what the end of, what verses 19 to 30 in chapter 2 are doing is laying out examples of what it means to live gospel-worthy lives. First, by pointing to Timothy. Timothy is one whose commitment to the gospel, whose commitment to the church, leads Paul to say in verse 20, I have no one like him. He stands out from the rest. And if you remember, back in chapter 1, there are these other preachers. They're preaching Christ, too. But they have bad motives. They want to do Paul in. They want to exalt themselves. And Paul's saying, Timothy's nothing like them. Timothy cares about other people. Timothy's not self-serving. He's faithful in his ministry, and he's faithful in his motives. He's living a life worthy of the gospel. And then he goes on to Epaphroditus, beginning in verse 25. Epaphroditus risks his life to serve Jesus. Verses 26 and 27 say that Epaphroditus was so sick he was close to death. But the thing, here's the thing, the thing that bothered Epaphroditus wasn't that he was sick. It wasn't whether he's going to live or he's going to die. That wasn't what was on his mind. His biggest concern was that the Philippians knew he was sick, and that that could be distressing to them. Can you imagine being in a situation where your life is at risk and your greatest concern is other people's concern for you, other people's heartache. Well, that's what was happening with Epaphroditus. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, that kind of heart, that kind of man, Paul says in verse 29 honor such men, honor those who live lives worthy of the gospel, such as Epaphroditus. But to the Philippian church back here in verse 12, this is what we looked at a few weeks ago, Paul says, in order to live a life worthy of the gospel, here's what you need to do. You need to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if you recall, that doesn't mean that we need to work hard in order to earn salvation. That would be impossible. It means to work out the details of what it means to be a Christian in our everyday lives. So, when I explained this, I said it's like getting a puzzle as a gift. you remember that? It's like getting a puzzle as a gift. Everything is in the box, and once you receive the gift, you're meant to put it together so that what was in the box is now on display. And the same is true in salvation. God has given us everything we need in the Lord Jesus Christ, and having received salvation by faith, we take all of those pieces that He's given to us, and we put them on… we put them together so that so that what was in the box, as it were, is on display in our lives. Work out your own salvation. Now, that's a pretty broad command. But as we get to verse 14, we get to Paul speaking more specifically to a particular issue that the Philippians need to address in order to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. He does this because he knows them. He knows the church. He knows their struggles. He knows what's their, what, what, what they're going through. He knows where they need to obey. And it's actually in the area of contentment. Contentment. So essentially, my, my laser like focus is really going to be on verses 14 to 16, where Paul basically says be content and you'll be distinct from the world. Be content and you'll be distinct. From the world. So first let's look at the command. It's right there in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, why do we grumble and dispute? Why do we complain? We complain because we're not getting what we want. Isn't that when we complain? When we're not getting what we want out of a person. When we're not getting what we want out of a circumstance. We complain at work, or at home, or at church, with friends, with bosses, with employees, with clients, with vendors, with customer service representatives. Parents complaining about their children, children complaining about their parents, 20-somethings complaining about whatever it means to be adulting, 60-somethings complaining about the complaints of the 20-somethings. We complain about our health. We complain about our finances. We complain about our government. We complain and we complain and we complain and we complain. And if you don't believe me, just hop on Facebook this afternoon and take a scroll. Just jump on Twitter. And you'll see a great percentage of grumbling. But Paul says to the church, do all things without grumbling. And the word grumbling essentially means murmuring, and as you'll know, this was written in the Greek language, and the Greek language here is the word gongusmas, which is a fun word to say, but it's an onomatopoeia, which means you get a sense of the meaning of the word in the very sound of the word, all right? It's like when you say buzz, right? You know that, oh, that's the sound a bee makes, right? Or boom, right? That's what happens when you drop the mic. That's what's supposed to happen. Uh, these kinds of things, honk and, and, and other and onomatopoeias. Other and so if you just imagine the entire congregation is sitting around and all through it, gungusmas, gungusmas. All right, so we're just going to have a congregational participation moment here for just a second, all right? Repeat after me, gungusmas. Now, we're going to take about six seconds, and all I want you to do is just repeat that word over and over and over again, all right? Gongusmas. Here we go. You ready? Are you ready? You're not supposed to say yes. You're supposed to say gongusmas. Okay. Are you ready? Well, don't complain. All right, anyway. so So, ready? Five or six seconds. Just repeat the word. Ready, set, go. All right, that's enough. That is the sound of murmuring. Just this buzz. I can't remember, was it? Uh, I can't remember which cartoon character it was that used to do that. You remember that? Tasmanian Devil did that? All right, fantastic. The Tasmanian Devil did that. Point for artists. All right. <laughs> But gangusmas is the word here, and it means to murmur, and it's used in other places. So like in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, Luke records that there's a complaint that arises from the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So there'd be a daily distribution of food to widows, and there was an imbalance happening. Some widows were getting more than other widows, and it wasn't, it wasn't distributed right. And so this is a real problem. This is a real issue that needs to be solved. But the Hellenists don't say, why don't we sit down at the table and let's solve this problem. They gungusmas. Or in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 9, Peter writes, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. He's saying, don't gungusmas while you're cooking for your guests. Don't gungusmas while you're cleaning, because you know you clean more when guests are coming over, right? Don't gungusmas when they stay longer than you had hoped. Don't gungusmas when the fingerprints of their three-year-old are on everything and something actually got broken while they were here. J.B. Phillips paraphrases it, be hospitable to each other without secretly wishing you didn't have to. Don't grumble. And then Paul also says, do all things without disputing. Now, this is questioning or arguing, but it's different than grumbling because grumbling is out loud, grumbling is something you can hear. Grumbling is something you call someone on the phone to do. Grumbling is something you do over lunch. Grumbling is something you do in the foyer. Grumbling is something you do laying in bed with your spouse as you talk about the children. Grumbling is those, those kinds of things. They're out loud. But disputing is not that. Disputing is that internal, under your breath, complaint. It's inside This is how deep, think about that, think about how deep this command runs. He's not just saying, hold your tongue and don't say any complaining words, he's saying, don't have a complaining heart. So when your boss asks you to do that, it's not just enough to obey this command by not saying, by not grumbling to your coworkers out loud. We also must not grumble internally. Children, when your parents ask you to do that thing, that chore, and the very thing you had marked on your calendar was, don't do a chore right now. Not only should you not grumble back at your parents, you shouldn't grumble in your heart. It's not enough to hold our tongues, apparently. But this is a command, by the way, which means that we must obey because to disobey God's commands is to what? To sin. Now, why is it a sin to complain? Isn't that a good question? I think it's an important question because we live in a culture that's made complaining into an art form. So how how is it that complaining is a sin? Now, before we go on to that, I do want to make sure and make a distinction that there is a place for the Christian to take our circumstances, our cares, our doubts, our pains to the Lord in prayer. If you read the Psalms, you hear what sound like complaints, but they're all taken to the Lord in faith, in prayer, submitting to Him. That's why you have this this question over and over again in the Psalms, how long, O Lord? How long am I going to suffer? How long until you intervene? How long until I see this? How long until the sun comes up again? It seems like it's been night for ten years. How long, O Lord? That is an expression of faith, but to complain about our circumstances, just walk around and just leave God completely out of it, because I'm not getting what I want. I'm going to complain about you. I'm going to complain about this circumstance. I'm going to complain about this or that. It is a way of saying, even if we never mention God by name, it is a way of saying about God, you're not doing as good a job as you could be right now. Now, why would that be the case? Well, let me ask, who is sovereign over every circumstance you will encounter? God. Do you remember the day that David was walking down the road and and uh, uh, there was a man on a hill. I think it's in Second Samuel around chapter 10, but I'm not really sure. I think of this moment all the time, and I always forget to look it up. So if you'll look it up and email me and tell me when it is, that'd be great. And then I'll forget it next time. But there's someone up on the hill, and he starts calling down curses on David. And David's men are like, hey, we can take care of that. We can take him out behind the woodshed, and we will get rid of him. And David says, no, 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 no. Who knows but that the Lord wants him to say that to me. Even in that moment, David accepts the sovereign, circum- the sovereign God's circumstances in his life. So complaining about circumstances is actually complaining about the God who rules over circumstances. Complaining about his use of his power, complaining about his decision-making skills, complaining about his wisdom, complaining about his faithfulness, saying to him, you could really be doing better here, God. Now, if you think back to the Old Testament, you remember the the Israelites are in slavery in Egypt, and what does God do? God rescues them, right? Raises up Moses. Moses sends plagues to show his power, saves them from the last and worst of the plagues, leads them out, leading them by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud during the day and brings them across the Red Sea on dry ground. And once they get across and Pharaoh's army starts, God closes it up on the the Egyptians and completely destroys their enemies. And they're on the other side. They're six weeks out of Egypt. And you would just think, they're just like... This God, there's nothing this God can't do. I mean, things don't look great, but look at God, right? They'd be rejoicing. They'd be walking by faith. They'd be doing all that. They'd say, I don't know how we're going to eat, but we're, we're following God. I don't know what we're going to drink, but, but this is God. He turned water into blood. Surely he can provide water for us. Is that what they did? No. No. Rather than walk by faith, remembering all that God had done for them, they complain. So, Exodus 16, verse 2, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And if you stop there, you think, well, this is just about Moses and Aaron. They must have done something wrong. But later in verse 8, Moses is speaking and telling them, the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against Him. What are we? Who are we to grumble against us? We don't have control over anything. Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. You see, dear friends, don't grumble or dispute or complain because when you do, you question God's right to be God. You're saying your way is better than his. Complaining is a way of wanting the throne of the universe for yourself because I'm pretty sure that I'd do this day, I'd do this week, I'd do this month, I'd do this year much better than God did. But, friends, maligning God's character like that is sin. It slanders his name, it drags his reputation through the mud, it dishonors him. Now some will say, you know what, Toby, you're right. This, this culture is so, mar- I can't even go to the grocery store without, I can't check out at the grocery store without hearing complaining. I can't go to the doctor's office. I mean, complaining is everywhere. You're right. We really need to cut down on the complaining. But you don't know where I am in my life right now. You don't know how hard it is. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I've lost. You don't know my pain. And truly, friend, I may not. But I do know that no matter how circumstances may take a turn for the worse, God never does. He is always good. He is always faithful. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. Even when we tend to feel like He has. That's when we have to remind ourselves of the truth. Now we often don't know precisely why life's events unfold as they do but we do know from the Scripture that God has purposes in our pain. We do know that nothing can separate the Christian from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So don't grumble. Don't dispute. Don't complain. Or to restate this command in, its, in, a, in a positive form, Be content. Remember that everything lies under the rule of a good and sovereign God who is wisely working together all things for your good and for His glory, who gave up His Son for you. And if He gave up His Son for you, how will He not also with Him give all things, everything you could possibly need and nothing that you don't? Be content. And in what circumstances are we to be content? Well, Paul says, do all things. And as you might imagine, all means all. (laughs) Raise your kids, do your job, serve at church, be a friend, suffer, hurt, grieve, walk through cancer. Do all things. If you think about it, it's another way of saying, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, be content. Because, friends, being content in a sovereign God when your life looks like a mess glorifies Him. Makes much of Him. says, He is the reality that determines my heart's attitude, not my circumstances. Be content. We need to consider this, don't we? We need to consider our actions. Quite frankly, it would be a good idea to ask those who are nearest to you in your life, family and friends, and ask them, am I a complainer? Because they will have heard it. Will you point it out to me if you hear me complaining about the circumstances God has given me? Will you hear me when I'm accusing God of wrongdoing by walking me through this or that? What do you see in my life? How do I respond when things don't go my way? Am I a complainer? And if they say yes, we shouldn't actually get defensive and for goodness sake, we shouldn't complain. We should actually ask the Lord to help us see where we've gone wrong to help us see where unbelief lies and we should repent and resolve by God's grace to be content it is something to learn by the way paul writes later uh, in 4:11 i have learned in whatever situation i am to be content Well, friend, if the Apostle Paul needed to learn it, so do we. And if the Apostle Paul could learn it by the help of the Spirit, so can we. Be content. Secondly, I just want to point out the reason. Why is it that we should obey this command? Why is it that we should be content? It's not just about because you'll have a happier life. Because pain is still going to come, you are still going to shed tears, you are still going to grieve, you are still going to be wrecked by circumstances because living in a sin-cursed world is painful. And it's not just because God said so, though quite frankly isn't that enough, right? God said so, so we need to do it. But Paul goes on to give us more than God said so, so that we understand why it is that this is so important. So let's look at verses 15 and 16 that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Essentially, Paul says, the reason that we should be content is because being content distinguishes us from the world. You see, it's quite a popular move to shake your fist at heaven and to yell at God all the things that He's doing wrong. Even for people who don't, frankly, trust in the Lord in any way, shape, or form, they are glad to tell you all of the things that God has done wrong in the world. But this is not the Christian way. Christians are to be distinct from the world. But it's not a matter of moral superiority so much as it's a matter of allegiance. It's a matter of worldview. Paul says, we are children of God. We are the children of a God who is good and who is in absolute control of absolutely everything. And so that should shape how we respond to life. So, Jeremiah Burroughs uh, wrote in this classic work, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, he wrote this. When affliction comes, this is what it looks like to be content. You ready? When affliction comes, whatever it is, you do not murmur. Though, You feel it, though you make your cry to God, though you desire to be delivered and seek it by all good means, yet you do not murmur or feel discontent. You do not fret or vex yourself. There is not a tumultuousness of spirit in you, not an instability. There are not distracting fears in your hearts, no sinking discouragements, no unworthy shifts, no risings of rebellion against God in any way. That's quite a description of contentment, isn't it? It's not natural to respond to affliction that way, is it? That's not the natural way to respond to affliction. Ah, but that's the point. That's the point. It's not natural. It's only by the Spirit of God that we can respond that way. It's only by the Spirit of God that there won't be tumultuousness of spirit or instability or distracting fears or sinking discouragements or unworthy shifts or rising, rebe- rising rebellion in our hearts against God. But when we are content like this, when we will when we just don't grumble, we just don't complain. When we begin to see the providence of God over every circumstance in life, that is a distinction from the world, is it not? it is. He says it's actually purity in an impure world. That's what he says. He says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Blameless, innocent, without blemish. The way of contentment is a way of purity, pure faith, pure trust in the Lord and His purposes a purity in distinction to the crooked the crooked and twisted generation around it's interesting that paul uses these words he says children of god without blemish in the middle of a tw- crooked and twisted generation now, sure, the Philippians could look around, we could look around in our culture, and we see crookedness and we see twistedness, but these words should call to mind something else because these words were used by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32. He, was, he wrote a song at the end of his life, and after he talks about the goodness and the faithfulness and the greatness of God, He turns his attention to describe the Israelites, and this is how he describes them in Deuteronomy 32 5. They have dealt corruptly with God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you hear all the similarities there? They're no longer children because they're blemished, they're a crooked and twisted generation. And for those that are hearing this and know their Old Testament, which they would, especially the Jews, this should strike a more sober warning in them. So yes, don't be like the world around you. Got it. But Paul's also saying don't be like the Israelites in the wilderness. Don't fail to trust God. Don't blemish yourself. Don't make yourself crooked. Instead, in the midst of your hardship, submit to the Lord. Trust His goodness and His wisdom. Don't grumble or complain like they did. Be pure where they were impure. Be pure in an impure world. But also, he says, this kind of contentment makes you shine as a light in a dark world. Light in a dark world, going on in verse 15, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now the contrast of dark and light runs through the Bible. We even heard it in our reading from 1 John uh, during our uh, time of praise. But Jesus says in John 3 that sinful humanity loves darkness more than light. And in John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In fact, the whole idea of becoming a Christian, 1 Peter says it means to come out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You see, we were lost in the darkness of sin. But Jesus came to rescue us. And as He hung on the cross, the darkness of our sin was laid on Him. He endured the punishment for our darkness. He died under our darkness. But Jesus conquered that darkness when He rose from the grave on the third day. And He'll rescue anyone who is lost in the dark if we will turn to Him in faith. I don't know if you've ever tried to read uh, in the dark but it's a it's a terribly frustrating experience especially with every passing year it gets worse and worse. You look at these words and they tend to go together and they're blurry and you can't do it and I need more light I need more light you can't see rightly. You can't even see to walk from the bed to the restroom in the middle of the night. But what happens when the light what happens when you put the book light on the book? Everything becomes clearer, doesn't it? What happens if there's a little light on? You can see your way. You see, we come out of darkness into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. And not only are we saved from our sin, but we begin to see things differently. We begin to see by His light ourselves Our lives, our families, our jobs, our world. We see the hardships of life differently when the light of Jesus is shining on them. And then he says, once you're in the light, once you're Christians, Jesus says uh, um, that you are the light of the world. Let your lights shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And here, back in Philippians 2, one of the ways that we shine as lights in the world is to live in contentment, is to trust God in all things. It is actually beautiful to hear and to watch as Christians walk through dark days shining with contentment, trusting the Lord with their health, with their children, with their finances, in their grief, I've seen it over and over again. I've seen it in you, Gray Road. I've seen it in so many of you as you have walked trusting the Lord. As some of you are walking right now, trusting the Lord with the thing that He has you in at this moment. And I praise the Lord for that. It blesses my soul to hear it. But apart from the personal struggles that we have, we live in hard days in our culture where being a Christian is not something that's celebrated, it's not something that's quite frankly even tolerated, it's denigrated, it's slandered, it's opposed. And certainly while we must stand, while we must not cease to preach the gospel, while we must make the case for a society aligned with God's Word, at the very same time we must shine with this kind of brightness, not grumbling, not complaining, not whining as if the government controlled eternity. Not complaining as if the government can actually snuff out the church somehow. Boy, have we lost sight of that. You put a fence around the property. Okay, whatever. We're still going to meet. We may not meet here. We may not meet like this. But we're the church. You can't kill the church. You can't do it. I mean, if the gates of hell can't do it, Surely, the government can't do it. There is a posture to dealing with these societal issues that is not one of complaining but is one of shining, one that is actually content to walk through life in the midst of a society that is increasingly hating Christianity to be content to live in that society. Not because we think it is best for the society, but to be content that God, who controls all things right now, has us right where we are. He wants to purify the church. He wants to strengthen the church. And quite frankly, He wants to not just keep us huddled. He wants the light of the gospel to reach more people because the darkness of the world will increasingly frustrate people. And as the world gets darker, the light of Jesus Christ from our lips and from our lives must shine more brightly. It must draw them in. Because a Christianized society, wherever the culture is kind of Christian, it's easy to say, I don't need Jesus. But as the world gets darker, and as things seem more desperate in people's eyes, don't you know that they need hope? They need the hope of Jesus. And we'll shine His lights, Paul says, as we hold fast to the Word of Life. We hold fast to the Word of Life so we can see, we can keep seeing our circumstances the way we ought to. We hold fast to the Word of Life because because it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And nothing Paul says Paul, Paul says nothing would give him more joy. Nothing would make his sacrifice more worth it than to see them obey in this. He says he says at the end of 16, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Dear Christian, be content. It's purity in an impure world. It's light in a dark world. Be content. It's the mark of a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be content. It's part of what it means to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Be content, and you'll be distinct from the world, which is the call of God on every Christian. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you, thankful, thankful that we can be content thankful to know that You are in control of absolutely everything at absolutely every moment of human history. We are thankful that You have loved us with an everlasting love. We are thankful that no matter what the circumstances of our life may say, nothing changes Your love for us. Your love was measured by the death of Jesus and not by the circumstances of our lives. We are thankful that You work all things for the good of us who love You and are called according to Your purpose for Your glory. We are thankful that one day with you we will never say that could have gone better because you are perfect in all your ways you are righteous you are holy you are majestic and in the midst of days that are dark where increasing animosity is shown to your people help us to be pure help us to shine as lights to stand for what is right, to preach what is true, to seek to do good, to love justice, to love mercy, and walk with you. And help us to do it without complaining. Help us to do it without grumbling. Help us to do it with confidence in you. We pray all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.